So James, I know as journalists, we try to be straight shooters, but we're both millennials here. So I, I just think we got to be careful when we're, as The Who would say, talking about our generation with this story. <laughs> yeah, this, is, uh, this might be the first election where I'll be covering more than just a couple of candidates who are actually part of my generation, which will be a, uh, a new reporting experience. <laughs> I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today... We've already seen in the first six months of the 2022 midterms uh, an explosion in the number of uh, millennial candidates running for the Senate trying to bring a generational shift to a chamber that is better known for senators who are in their 70s and 80s than it is for senators who are of a younger generation. And it's going to be a pretty interesting test case for whether there will be a generational shift in the Senate starting in 2022. James Arkin on the possibility of millennial mania in the midterm election. Democrats are now set to take control of the U.S. Senate after winning both Senate runoff elections in Georgia. As I write in my story, and and this was a really big deal at the time, during the January runoffs, uh, not least of which because the the January runoffs in Georgia won two seats for Democrats that gave them control of the Senate majority. Uh, But John Ossoff, uh, who was 33 when elected, uh, became the first member of the millennial generation elected to the Senate. Good morning. It is with humility that I thank the people of Georgia for electing me to serve you in the United States Senate. Thank you for the confidence and trust that you have placed in me. Now, there have been you know, a number of, of uh, younger members elected to the House. Uh, and so millennials had, had been represented in Congress before, but, but Ossoff was the first uh, member of that generation elected to the Senate. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's particularly noteworthy just because, I mean, currently there are more senators in their 80s than there are senators in their 30s. Wow. And there are more senators over 75 than there are senators under 45. And so a number of the candidates that I talked to and, and you know, a number of party strategists uh, say that this is, you know, potentially a, a moment where we see a shift, uh, you know, not a not a rapid shift necessarily, but it, it just sort of could be the beginning of, of a longer term movement towards uh, more representation for younger generations in the chamber. I want to get into that potential movement. But first, I'm curious. I mean, those numbers you laid out are pretty shocking. The fact that Ossoff is the only millennial senator, the first millennial senator. And for people who don't know, that's people like you and me, um, born between 1981 and 1996. But I mean, those numbers about senators over the age of 45, over the age of 80, um, it's kind of wild to hear that out loud in a way. Why does the Senate tend to skew so much older? I I mean, I think when you look at it over the long-term course of this happening, it's not altogether surprising, Mm -hmm. um, just because for the most part, Senators get elected later in life when they've had more experience. Um, that's that's been the historical trend of the mm-hmm. Senate. Whether that's uh, you know having gone up through state legislatures, doing a, a couple of terms in the House. There are a number of former governors. There are a lot of senators who had long careers in business and and sort of ran for the Senate uh, at the end of their business careers. Mm-hmm. And so, just for a, for a variety of reasons, a lot of senators accrue quite a bit of experience in their lives before they ultimately make that run for the chamber. Uh, and so you you have, you know, senators who are starting out in their careers a little bit older than some of these candidates that I was writing about. And then also you have a number of senators who have just been around for, for a really long time and continue getting reelected and continue running for 
additional terms. And and so, you know, those two things combined just tend to skew the chamber a, a little bit toward the older side. Now that you've said that, yeah, it makes me think it, it does make sense <laughs> that they're older. So that makes me wonder, how did a candidate like John Ossoff um, make it happen? Well, so Ossoff came to this with the experience of having run in the incredibly competitive, high profile special election in Georgia's sixth house district that happened in 2017. It was sort of the first major election after Donald Trump's election to the presidency. And so a ton of money, uh, a ton of national attention went there. And and Ossoff was very young at the time that he was running for that House seat. Uh And he was unsuccessful in that campaign. But that was sort of a signal of what was coming for Democrats in those 2018 midterms. He did very well in that district compared to how Democrats had done in that district just several months earlier in the 2016 elections. And so Ossoff made this run again for Senate and a lot of, um, you know, the fundraising and a lot of the experience and a lot of the notoriety from that House race transferred over and gave him some success in that Senate Senate race. And then, of course, once it went to a runoff in January, it became the most high profile of elections alongside the other Georgia race they they ran at the same time uh, that we've ever seen, the most expensive elections that we've ever seen in in Senate history. (laughs) And, And so Ossoff just was already a national figure. He was already well-known from that House race, and that just sort of exploded uh, with all the attention that came from that Senate runoff. Mm. So you're reporting that there is now a slew of candidates um, trying to do something similar in 2022, next year in the midterm elections, both Republicans and Democrats like Ossoff. Who are they, and what should we know about them? There's a lot of them. Um, I mean, I think the overarching thing that we should know is that uh, there's no one through line for who these candidates are. There's there's quite a bit of variety. Um, and so, you know, as I said in the story, there's there's Republicans and Democrats uh, from this generation. Um, you know, for example, on the same day, July 1st, the first day of the, the third fundraising quarter, we saw an announcement from J.D. Vance, uh, an, an Ohio Republican who joined the crowded Senate primary there. New at 11, a U.S. Marine, venture capitalist and author, Middletown native J.D. Vance is hoping to add another title to his resume. U.S. Senator. And an announcement from Charles Booker, a Kentucky Democrat who's running his second Senate campaign there, uh, both of them in their mid-30s. A lot of people don't believe that change is possible in Kentucky. I feel that too. But the one thing I know about the people of Kentucky, we are unstoppable. In Wisconsin, several of the candidates, the state treasurer, Sarah Godlewski, who is 39, um, Alex Lazary, who is an executive with the Milwaukee Bucks, is 33. And then potentially the Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes could be a candidate. He has not announced anything, but but is considering a run. And, and he's also in his mid-30s. Mm-hmm. And then in Pennsylvania, Malcolm Kenyatta is a state representative who's running for the seat, who is 30. And Connor Lamb, who, similar to Ossoff, is, is really well-known nationally because of his win in a special election for the House, is 37. And, and he's expected to run. He hasn't officially announced anything yet. And so that would be two candidates in that race. Uh-huh. You have Katie Boyd Britt, who is a Republican in Alabama, who's a former chief of staff to Richard Shelby, the, the senator who's retiring. She's 39. I look at D.C. and look at Washington, and I don't recognize our country anymore and feel like our Christian conservative values are under attack. And so we believe that the next generation has to stand up and fight for the next generation. You know, Shelby is one of those senators who's in his 80s, who's, who's been around for a number of terms. And now that he's retiring, there would be quite a generational shift if Britt is able to replace him. She has a pretty tough primary on her hands with uh, Congressman Mo Brooks and uh, Linda Blanchard, a former ambassador, uh, Brooks has been endorsed by Donald Trump. So that makes that a competitive race. Mm-hmm. But Britt, um, you know, talked about how her experience, um, you know, could kind of set her apart 
with with the generational appeal. And mm-hmm. so that's just, you know, there are just a number of candidates and they're kind of all over the place. And that's sort of what makes this such an interesting trend is it's not just related to, oh, John Ossoff won a Senate election. Now we can elect younger, you know, Democrats, younger Republicans to the Senate. It's I, I think there just really is this sort of bubbling up of a feeling among members of this generation that the time has come. So the candidates see a moment. Do you think voters see that moment or that like the parties that the candidates are are part of see this moment? Like, do they have the appeal necessary to like sway, you know, voters? I think not to cop out uh, my answer, but I think time will tell. Hmm. Um, I mean, most of most of these candidates are running in competitive primaries Mm -hmm. that are going to happen over the course of the first couple of months of, of 2022. And so that's going to be the first test. Uh, some of them are, are running against, you know, as I said, in a couple of these races, uh, members of their generation. Um, and some of them are running against more established politicians who have more electoral experience or are better known candidates. And, and so I think it remains to be seen. I, I think the thing about Ossoff and, you know, a Democratic strategist pointed out to me, the thing that you could see maybe from like Pete Buttigieg's uh, presidential campaign is that clearly we have seen voters take these younger candidates seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not a question of whether these candidates can be taken seriously. It's just a question of, you know, there are so many factors that go into whether you can run a successful race and, and what voters are looking for in a candidate, especially in some of these races that are going to be pretty critical to who controls the majority since it's 50-50 right now. So I think time will tell. I, I think if we start to see a pattern of a lot of these younger candidates winning their primaries and and being the ones to represent their party in the general elections, then that's that's a pretty telltale sign that this is something that voters are looking for. And if we don't, then maybe that's a telltale sign that that voters are, you know, impressed by younger candidates, but aren't maybe willing to take the risk of, of someone of that generation uh, being the standard bearer for their party. So I, I think we'll see over the course of primaries in the first couple of months of 2022, which direction this trend is going. James Arkin, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. Also today... HHS Secretary Javier Becerra is working to clarify his argument that, quote, it is absolutely the government's business to know which Americans have been vaccinated against the coronavirus after facing backlash from Republicans in Congress. Becerra's initial comment came in response to criticism on the right over the Biden administration's latest push to persuade vaccine-hesitant people to get their shots. As Biden laid out on Tuesday, those efforts include going, quote, door to door, which Republicans cast as potential infringements on civil liberties. In a tweet on Thursday, Becerra said his comments from earlier in the day had been taken wildly out of context and, quote, the government has no database tracking who is vaccinated. And Vice President Kamala Harris has announced a $25 million expansion of the Democratic National Committee's I Will Vote campaign, a move intended to increase voter registration, turnout, and protections. In a speech at Howard University on Thursday, Harris said, quote, Regardless of who you are, where you live, what party you belong to, your vote matters, your vote is your power. The announcement comes a week after the Supreme Court upheld restrictive voting laws in Arizona and after 17 states have enacted dozens of new laws this year that restrict voting access. Nearly 400 restrictive bills across 48 states have also been introduced. 
The Politico Dispatch team includes senior editor Raghu Manavalan, senior producer Jenny Ament, and executive producer Irene Noguchi. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>